Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, Today we continue in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 12, verses 32 through 40. And I actually found this a really awkward group of verses. So I'm going to have Alan explain what is going on. I think awkward is putting it mildly, to be honest with you, Christy. Uh, I I just, I I want to cry foul uh, with the way that the Revised Common Lectionary really just kind of shreds the context of Luke's gospel in our lesson for this week. Well, and you'll notice, friends, if you decide to go, maybe maybe you decide to Google uh, Luke 12, uh, maybe you try to put in these verses, it won't come up no. very well. It You'll see different, uh, more appropriate um, gatherings of, of verses. So Yeah, I mean, they, they tack on the, the last few verses, basically, of one episode, and not even the central ones of that first episode at that, and then sort of tacks them onto a couple of observations about the need for faithful discipleship. And, you know, while this whole selection. I mean, Luke 12 as a whole is kind of um, works as a whole, and, and it, there's a thematic unity to it. The way the lectionary divides the reading makes it difficult, if not impossible, to follow, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Well, and I think, it, especially after we had such nice units and stories mm-hmm. that were just really stood on their own. I yeah, mean, absolutely. You, you get, you know, the good Samaritan just works. It does. Mary and Martha just work, and then you have this, and you're like, Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it is a little, it's a little hard to make sense of. So we're going to try for you, though. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to back up and take it from verse 22 yeah. and look at the context as a whole. And we're going to actually go beyond verse 40 because it it really does. It does. The, the, the idea does continue. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, this is true prior to this particular version of the, of the lectionary. And, of course, when I'm looking at how it's divided with, you know, by reformers, it's, it's not this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and even even on the Sunday that this, you know, when this comes up as the lectionary reading, as the as the lesson for the day, I may include the whole context in the in the gospel reading. And I think, yeah, I, I think you could absolutely do that, even if you preached on some of it before, just right. to make it make sense when you read it. Right. It's it's odd. It's right. just odd. Right. So you know, one one of the things I want to reiterate uh, about this whole section of Luke's travel narrative is that it's connected by this foundational approach to God that we been talking about for the last several weeks. Jesus' teaching on prayer encouraged a deep trust in God's goodness that is meant not only to free us from all kinds of greed, as in the parable of the rich fool, but also to motivate a life of generosity that takes the form of practicing the mercy that we saw in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so, you know, this this whole chapter is really just kind of resonating with the themes that we've already seen in this section of Luke's gospel. And then with that in in mind, then Luke 12, 22 to 34 constitutes a continuation, really, of last week's lesson with the, with the parable of the rich fool. Mm-hmm. And it elaborates on the statement that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, mm-hmm. but rather in God's grace and goodness and in God's, you know, in trusting that God will provide for our needs. I, I find it interesting that the whole segment from Luke twelve twenty two to thirty four finds its parallel in Matthew chapter mm-hmm. six verses nineteen to twenty one and twenty five through thirty four. Uh, it's that passage about not worrying about tomorrow. Right, right. 
But the nature of the parallel is what I find interesting. While there are significant verbal agreements in the wording of the two passages, there are also significant differences. And it makes me wonder whether the gospel tradition was transformed in the different communities in which it was passed Mm. along, perhaps first orally and then even in written form, because there's some very significant differences. For example, uh, in Matthew, it's just the birds of the air. In Luke, it's the ravens. Hmm. And ravens have a particular cultural fi- figure, you know, mm-hmm. in the society that day. And so, and there's there are a number of different um, changes like that, the differences that make you go, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, this is it's not just random, it seems right, like. Right, right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. The other thing is that, um, it, you know, when Jesus is comparing the food to, bo- to, to life and, and clothing to the body, he asks questions. And in Luke, in Matthew, he asks questions. In Luke, he makes statements. Mm-hmm. And so that's an interesting switch as well. Jesus is just declaring, you know, um, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Mm-hmm. And he's not asking, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, then, but then you come to certain parts of the passage and it's word-for-word agreement between the two. And so it's that, that strange mix that we find in synoptic gospels it, of, of agreement and difference. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not just Luke choosing different words i don't think probably so not I, I i really do see it as the gospel tradition you know as it was being passed on right. orally well, and then in written see form that with in different raven, communities which is so specific to bird kind of being a oh i can remember you know thinking oral mm, can't remember the word oh, it, bird mm-hmm. you could see how in an oral tradition it would it would shift mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. easily so hmm interesting yeah now, that, that God's grace and goodness are abundant is apparent both to logic in this passage. Uh, life is more than food and the body more than clothing in verse 23, mm-hmm. as well as to observation from the natural world where mm-hmm. God's abundant grace can be seen in his provision for right. the ravens and for the grass of the field mm-hmm. um, in verses 24 and 28. But then the focal contrast of that passage is between those who, like the rich fool, orient their lives towards storing up treasures for themselves, which we mm-hmm. saw in verse 21. And it, it only really, in this, and, and in this whole ex- explanation, that only engenders fear and worry. It doesn't help with worry. And, and it may even illustrate an, a rather arrogant posture toward God. In other words, this idea that mm-hmm. I'm, I, you know, I'm self-sufficient and right. I don't need God. Right. And, and we find that with the interesting verb in verse 29, meteorizomai. Now, a lot of translations will render that as don't be anxious or don't worry. But in the Septuagint, it means to be presumptuous. Mm. And so it means really more Mm. adopting this kind of arrogant attitude of, you know, I don't need Mm -hmm. anyone to provide for me because I'm self-sufficient. So the contrast is between those... Who, and, and who who take that approach like the rich fool, and the others who adopt the posture of a disciple by seeking God's kingdom mm-hmm. and finding one's life by welcoming the kingdom by living according to its principles, as was outlined, for example, in the Sermon on the Plain and elsewhere in mm-hmm. Jesus' teachings, and by 
participating in the mystery of ministry of proclamation and service, just as the 70 or the 72 did when mm-hmm. they were sent out, mm-hmm. you know, earlier on in this section. So all, you, you know, there, there are threads right. in this whole section that connect with the other, uh, the right. previous passages and the ones that are to come. And I think that's an interesting feature uh, of Luke's travel narrative. And that, that really, that I think what really sets the stage for today. Now, mm. If you have that in mind, when you come into this set of passages, it, I think it helps. So. It's going to, I hope, I hope it's going to make more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So this brings us then to begin to the beginning of the gospel reading for today in the lectionary in Luke twelve thirty two Jesus assures those who take this posture by calling them God's little flock, which assumes the faith that God cares for His people like a shepherd cares for his flock, which of course is an image from the Hebrew Bible in Psalm mm-hmm. twenty three, and we have the the more extended passage in Ezekiel thirty four, which talks about how the shepherds of his people had failed to care adequately for the flock, and so he was going to come and be their shepherd. Let me ask this: so the reformers, at least one of them, took this little this adjective to mean a not very big number. So almost as if this this chosen number, or does it really have a different meaning, like a more of a diminutive, like my my children? I, I think I would see it as as a term of endearment. Mm-hmm. Now you might, in the history of the first century church, you might see it as sort of a a an indirect allusion to the vulnerability of the first century mm-hmm. church because they were quite vulnerable in, in mm-hmm. Greco-Roman and Jewish society. That you know, We think of the church as being this monolith today, and, mm-hmm. and it is, but in that day, you know, the church was very fragile and right. very, very much vulnerable. Um, they, they, they didn't have any power or, right. or prestige or influence or clout, you know. But I, I see it primarily as a as a term of endearment more so than 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 you know a theological. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. The, well, the theology behind it is that God cares. Yeah. For his flock. Yeah. I mean, they made a big. Well, they they tie it into in this idea of a chosen of a right. little flock that that and right. that will move forward. But they were looking at numbers. Well, the disciples in the seventy, and there just weren't very many. And I I didn't read it that way, at mm-hmm. least when I read it. So I thought that was an interesting point they yeah. had made. So, yeah. okay, good. Moving on then. Yeah, and so Jesus promises them specifically that it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, and along with it all they need, mm-hmm. which has already been stated in in verse thirty. Seek the seek first God's kingdom, mm-hmm. and all these things will be given to you mm-hmm. as well. Now I find it interesting that that's the that's the you know if you if you look again this is interesting about the parallel in Matthew's gospel because in in Matthew's gospel this statement is in Matthew's gospel it's therefore don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself in Luke's gospel it's it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom I find that to be a very interesting difference mm. you know and so Luke is really coming in very clearly just emphasizing God's goodness God's grace mm-hmm. God's going to give you not only the things you need to eat and to wear, he's also going to give you the kingdom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so we and we saw that last uh, last week or a week or so before before we talked about prayer. You know that um, you know in Matthew's gospel, it's if you being evil know how to good gifts give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give right. good things to you? In Luke, it's how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of um, idea of of the the you know. The, the real gift, the, the, the highest mm-hmm. gift, is, is the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. and that's what God's going to give them. But he's also going to give them what they need as well. 
Yeah. So it. Yeah, it's it's it's. Um, I don't know. I don't know quite the right word. I mean, I, I mean, think it's an interesting theological it, take on it. I think it shows it shows Luke's. I think it shows Luke's um, theological take. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's he's emphasizing you know God's God's grace, God's provision, God's kingdom. But then I think it also shows again this sort of this the way Luke weaves the themes yeah. together. I see a, from your description from thinking about this. Uh, uh, much more, much more of this God's interaction with people mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, this God that's still maybe viewed above. And I could see that with Matthew in particular, yeah. with a with maybe a, a maybe a more Jewish um, uh, audience. Mm-hmm. But Luke is like, no, God is going to come down and take care of you and blend into you and and form you and. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly what Luke is doing. You know, that God's, they've already, they're already experiencing the kingdom, you know, of God Mm -hmm. in Jesus' ministry. Although the fullness, the full completion of the kingdom awaits the coming of the Son of Man at the end. But in Luke's gospel, this is also a very important theme that they already experience God's kingdom through Jesus' ministry. And 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 that is something that is, that is meant to shape them into a different community. Well, and it's interesting to to process this out because if you get a taste of the kingdom now that makes you hunger for the full kingdom it, it has a very mm-hmm. different um it has a very it has a nowness to it that that matthew maybe doesn't have right it's yeah. a taste it now and now you you it's like you you, you have to you you have to you have to fall into line that's probably the wrong way to put it you have you can't help but Right. You can't uh, help but once you've experienced the kingdom, it is going to reshape yeah, your life. Yeah, it's going to reshape your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, So then based on this posture of trusting in God's unfailing goodness as reflected in the presence of the kingdom among them, they are free then from the striving for possessions. And again, the word mm-hmm. is huparkanta, mm-hmm. the, the participle form of huparko, as we saw earlier in the parable of the rich fool mm-hmm. in, in Luke twelve fifteen, where it says that one's life does not consist in the abundance of positions. So we're free from the striving for possessions and may instead sell them in order to give alms to those in need, mm-hmm. not in order to place them in one's debt, which was basically, that was the way gifts were worked in that day and time. You gave a gift in order to um, uh, basically obligate somebody to you mm-hmm. uh, in the system of patronage that was that was, was basically common mm-hmm. in the day. It was not just a Greco-Roman thing. It was in the Jewish culture as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, we're free then to, to give alms to those in need, not in order to place them in one's debt, but rather simply out of the love and the practice of mercy towards others, which, which in the kingdom of God requires no reciprocation. And that's kind of a radical idea. Mm-hmm. As we said once before, one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified is not only because he overturned the whole system of clean and unclean upon which the Jewish religious system was founded. Right. He also overturned this whole system of reciprocity yep. Yep. that the client and patron system was 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 based on in that right. whole society. So he was unraveling the whole society right 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 Uh, and so doing this then giving one's possessions to others to meet their needs is what it means to seek an unfailing treasure in heaven that nothing can diminish in Mm -hmm. verse 33 Mm -hmm. and then and then it moves on there's a little bit more i i kind of saw two general themes so there's a little bit more of this theme i think yeah yeah and so in this section then the lesson concludes with a statement that's parallel Virtually word for word in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. Mm-hmm. But in contrast to Matthew's setting in, in, in Luke's gospel, the idea elaborates further on what it means to seek the kingdom by pointing out that it involves not only the will, but also the mm-hmm. heart. And I think we can refer to Luke 10, 27, where, where it talks about the great commandment is loving God with all one's mm-hmm. you know, heart right. and soul and mind and strength. You know, mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an all-encompassing kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think that makes sense. Um, so then we kind of move on to what is kind of a shift in direction um, from um, uh, from this, if you will, the, the possessions and, and, and what you what you need uh, to watchfulness. Right, right, right. Yeah, it does seem to sort of veer off in a different direction. But in reality, I would say this whole section of Luke concerns diligent faithfulness on the part of Jesus' disciples. And, and that applies to opposition initially. Uh, warning against the Jewish leaders, it applies to possessions, and it applies to the conduct appropriate to life in God's household, especially in light of the certainty of the coming of the master or the kurios. And we note this word in the way it's used mm-hmm. in Luke. We've talked about that several times. You know, it refers to Jesus. So mm-hmm. we, we have the certainty of the coming of the master or the Lord combined with the uncertainty of the timing of his coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the NRSV translation, along with most recent translations, obscures yes. the significance of the instruction in Luke twelve thirty five to be dressed for action. It really is a whole, it's really not true to the Greek. And yeah. it's kind of funny because it, um, I, I, when you read it the other way, it, it kind of stops you for a minute. It does. When you read it this way, you kind of brush over it. Yeah. I, I get, I get what they mean. I kind of get maybe why they picked this, but it, it kind of, it doesn't have that same kind of stop and really think about what this what it means here well and you know when it comes to translation there's always the tension between being true to the literal greek Mm -hmm. and rendering a functional equivalent in english right and most people don't understand what it means to let your loins be girded or to keep your robes tied up with a belt would probably be a better translation in english keep your robes tied up with a belt but the problem is that you know this is an idiom uh, in the Hebrew Bible and in the in the New Testament, and when you translate an idiom into something else, you you make it more easy to just overlook how much it's used in the Bible. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so I would translate it: keep your robes tied up with a belt, and and. One of the one of the important allusions that we miss if we don't translate it that way is the, that it's it's very likely alluding to the instructions to the children of Israel on the manner in which they were to partake of the Passover meal in Exodus chapter twelve. Mm-hmm. Right. So the image really is of someone with long robes tied up with a belt in order to allow for action. And so in the setting of the Passover meal, they're supposed to be ready to right. travel. Right. Right. Exactly. And and here the idea is their their robes are tied up in order to enable them to serve. Well, you know, and I, you know, thinking about that Passover me a little bit more. I mean, this is where they don't use leaven because mm-hmm. they have to make the cakes quickly because they have to get out. I mean, right. this there's even it, I, I'm pushing this because I don't even think your explanation has the urgency right. that 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 has when we look back Surely. at the scripture Absolutely. there. And so this takes on a whole dress for action is really a go this is this is yeah. this is a readiness yeah. it's a, there is an urgency there mm-hmm. and and there's an interesting connection between the beginning between this and the beginning of the passage because you may recall Jesus begins this passage by warning his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees oh yes <laughs> oh yes that's true oh yeah. yes so so yeah. there there are some there there is some interesting um, imagery that contributes mm-hmm. to that that's idea kinda, of urgency yeah, yeah definitely yeah. 
So the, this idiom is also used in Ephesians six fourteen and First Peter one thirteen as an admonition to Christians to staying to, yes. to Christian communities to staying prepared. And in addition, Jesus uses the image of having your lamps lit as a different but complementary image mm-hmm. of readiness. So all of it has to do with being being. I mean, being being ready for action is the idea. But I I so I don't have any I don't have qualms with 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 you know right. the, the 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 idea of the translations. It's just that it obscures the fact that this idiom is a unique one in the Bible and it's used in various places. Mm-hmm. And you, you then when you translate it, translate it away like that, you, you don't have the, the opportunity to be able to trace, oh, where does it, where else right. does it translate this? Right. I, where it, else does this image occur in the Bible? Right. Yeah. It almost, yeah. It, 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 I, as I said, I get how they got there. I think the casual reader isn't going to understand no. the other one. So you therefore pass over it, like you pass over it. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it, it is, it's one of those tensions that we have with translation mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So then Jesus goes on and uses a brief parable, the parable of the watchful servants. Um, he instructs those who would be vigilant, vigilant about being faithful disciples to be like those who are waiting for their master. And again, it's curious to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Now, although it's not spelled out immediately, I think Jesus is clearly instructing those who align their lives with God's kingdom as his disciples to adopt the posture of slaves in serving one Mm. another. And thus, in the next verse, Jesus pronounces a beatitude on those who adopt this posture. He says, blessed are those slaves whom the master, again, curios, finds alert when he comes. And in this respect, Jesus was literally turning the world upside down, to take the to borrow the phrase from Acts chapter 17, verse 6. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, to instruct a free person to adopt the posture of a slave overturns all social, political, mm-hmm. and religious conventions. Again, as Mary's song anticipated it would. Yes, yes. <laughs> way back in way Luke back 152, right? Yeah. So <laughs> You know, my mind is sitting here spinning around with slave versus servant. Um, I know those are kind of used interchangeably. Um, and I was processing this as you were talking about this because a servant would theoretically have a, 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 the ability to step away, but a slave would not. Not in that world. Not in that world. There wouldn't really be that significant of a distinction between slave and okay. servant. A, sl- okay. a servant might be more of a household slave, but they would nevertheless be bound. Be bound. That, okay. It, it was possible for slaves to gain their freedom, and there were certain there were there there was a whole class of people in Jerusalem called the freedmen. Right. They were right. slaves who had earned their freedom. But if you if you are serving anybody else, whether it's you whether would you're be called a, a servant, I guess or a that's slave, my question mark in terms you, of the language you are, there. You are obligated so does it i mean what is i I guess maybe i'm thinking of it in terms of translation wise then you know usually when i'm using greek i'll choose servant Mm -hmm. instead of slave is Mm -hmm. it is that better to use slave because of the connotations well servant could in our way could be someone that's i think i think it is better to use slave because um servant is a little softer word it is and you know i think what jesus is doing is he's really challenging people's sense of self-worth and 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 their notion because people's it's it's our own sense of ego and our own sense of self-worth that gets in the way of our being able to humble ourselves in order to truly Mm -hmm. serve other people in the way that we're called to do and and Jesus says we're basically to adopt the, the posture of a slave mm-hmm. toward others, you know that that, and, and you know obviously 
I mean, if we want to push that metaphor, you know, there are all kinds of um, psychological and emotional and, you know, self-esteem issues that could get get really sticky with that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, you know, is to say, you know, in, in the kingdom that Jesus brings, um, service is is what it's about. Right. And and it's, it's, it's humble service that, you know... It, it's where one humbles oneself mm-hmm. in order to serve other people. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think about I think about the passage in Philippians chapter two where Jesus humbled himself, right? You right, know, right. Uh, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, right? So, so it's 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 humble, obedient service that may push us. You know, in terms of our of our sense of self status or Mm -hmm. our status in society but that's part of the whole point of what jesus is doing is he's saying you know it's not about status in this society it's about the kingdom of god i'm caught up on it now because now i'm thinking maybe i should translate humble obedient servant instead of slave we don't like the word slave we don't like the word slave and as as you're talking about it here so as you are talking about it i'm still i'm not sure i i'm not sure i've I'm not sure I'm on board. I'm not. I'm not sure I'm comfortable yeah. with using the word slave, and yet that might be the better translation. I think because maybe the word slave has with it, um, you know, slavery in our country. Mm-hmm. It has this kind of historical. It how we understand slave in terms of. American citizens is is different too than they would have seen slavery then. Yes, in, so in the I Greco-Roman wonder, world, slavery went all the way from mine workers and galley slaves who had a very—I mean, they were they were badly mistreated, and that's probably more the equivalent of what we would think of as slaves, all the way to the steward of a household who would be basically the manager of the whole property and would have had a very comfortable life even though he was technically speaking a slave and was owned by the master. Well, what I know about the ancient world is that slavery isn't tied specifically to race, which is what right. happens in American right. society. That's so, another factor. Well, you do still see the spectrum of slavery in the American South. You don't have... Um, you still have it's it's a group of people that are identified as being a slave. So I'm still stumbling over this. I think we have a problem. I think, I think we, we have, have a problem, problem with the language of slavery in in the Bible mm-hmm. because of our history. I think in so this too. Yeah. Which then leads me to servant, but then I think it's too soft. It I doesn't do, have do. quite the the space. So I'm 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 feeling stuck here. Um, I think that's okay. I think again. I think the, I think the point of a passage like this is to is to push us you know and to and to and to hold us in the tension of of our notions of our play, of our place in society versus the the call of the kingdom and what the call of the kingdom mm-hmm. means in terms of how we relate to others and and what what the community of those who follow Jesus mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, seek the kingdom looks like okay yeah so Luke continues laying out this topsy-turvy world of God's kingdom by promising those who practice vigilance and faithful discipleship by remaining committed to the kingdom will be met with a shocking reversal of roles. And this is one of the reasons why I want to I keep, keep the language of slavery here. Is it truly, I tell you, he, that is the master, will fasten his belt, so he will gird up his loins, he will tie up his robes with a belt, mm-hmm. and, and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. And so again, the importance of a more literal translation of the image in verse 35 is here, because the master, the curios, is the one who adopts the posture of the slave here, and serves them, mm-hmm. and the verb is diakoneo. 
So, so I think that's one of the important things that, you know, for all of our problems with language of kingdom and slavery and all of that mm-hmm. in the Bible, the point of the language in the New Testament is to say that God's kingdom right. overturns all of our notions about these matters in our society. And so for the, for the master, for the kurios to dress like a slave by belting up his robes and serve them at a table, you know, serve them, mm-hmm. serve his, serve, serve his slaves a meal. That was just unheard of. That would not have happened. And yet this is the kingdom that Jesus is yeah. bringing. And yeah. this is, and, and I think there are implications here for the community of those who follow him and how they're to uh, relate to one another in that community. Yeah, that's, um, I like I like that if we can move our people beyond the language, um, right? And that I still think there's I still think I still going to argue there's problems there. I mean, oh, there as are I'm, uh, as I'm working with it just because of of how we hear it. But yet I I love the 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 turning on upside down. So mm-hmm. um, I keep hoping. I I, I think the point of it is it's 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 like it's like Paul said. You know, uh, in the kingdom of God, there's no there's no male or female. There's no slave right. or free. There's right. no Greek or Jew. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And that's that's actually be a wonderful thing to pair with this wouldn't it yeah um okay so now moving on we've got um jesus serving or the lord serving so moving on well and you know one of the things that's interesting with this passage is that while this master or curios has remained ambiguous i think as you read along there's no doubt in luke's gospel who deserves the title of curios first of all and there's also only one such master who has the insight into God's kingdom purposes to take on such a shocking reversal of roles. And, and one of the things I think we'll see later on in Luke's gospel is that Joel Green notes, that is the, it really is the case throughout Luke's gospel, but we'll see it especially later on, that Jesus is revealed as, as the Lord, as the curios, mm-hmm. by his conduct at the table. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of, of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's when he was breaking the bread right. that their eyes were right. Right. Yeah. And I think, again, within the context of what we're doing and turning the world upside down, I think it's lost on us a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. But this, but, but I I do like, I think we're we're starting to at least get there that this is really, um, this is really turning this is really different. This is not how the world works. It is. So it is right. So now this, this identification of the master with Jesus is further confirmed by the concluding verses, which allude to the uncertainty of a thief breaking into one's house and leads to the conclusion in verse 40, you, must, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so the master of the parable is none other than Jesus himself, the curios, the, the one who is curios, who is willing to serve. And I, I, I want to also point out in, in Luke 22, 27, where the con, in the context of the Last Supper, Jesus declares, I am among you as one who serves. So again, it's in the context of the meal. It's in the context of the Last Supper that Jesus reveals himself as the curios mm-hmm. who serves. So this connection then with the Last Supper reinforces an allusion here to the final banquet celebrating the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, as we see, for example, Mm -hmm. in Isaiah 25. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, although our gospel lesson ends there, I think it's important to look at the following context. In response to Peter's question, Lord, Mm -hmm. and again, it's curios. Yeah, yeah, so you're going to hear that. (laughs) 
the address yes, to absolutely. Jesus after this kind of theoretical, yeah. hypothetical situation. Yeah. yeah. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? I think clearly, you know, Peter was uncomfortable with the notion of adopting the um, posture yes, of a slave. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, this was something that, you know, we've talked about how we may feel uncomfortable with this language. Peter was uncomfortable with the language mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah. And Jesus responds with another parable about the faithful steward, or oikonomos, mm-hmm. which becomes an image for ministry in the New Testament, mm-hmm. uh, who is diligent about carrying out the work assigned. And Jesus contrasts this then with the unfaithful slave who takes advantage of the other slaves, again acting out of an arrogant presumption, that same kind of arrogance that we saw referred to earlier, that the master is delayed in coming, and so he did not need to really be vigilant or watchful, and um, and he takes advantage of the other slaves. And so Jesus warns of a dire fate that would that would await such a person, uh, put him with the unbelievers, um, the NRSV says with the unfaithful, but it's literally unbelievers in verse 46, and that awaits those who, that awaits those who know what to do and don't do mm-hmm. it. Now, this will in turn lead into the gospel lesson for next week, which will further explore the radical changes brought about by the coming of the kingdom in Jesus' ministry. Wow. And that, I mean, for a passage that was so hard to get get through, it really sets up be- us up beautifully for the next week. So it yeah. could work well in a series. And yeah, this definitely. Is, this is pretty, that actually makes it kind of more exciting now than it did when I first read it. Yeah, I mean, because if we think we think it's hard now, we're going to hear about Jesus bringing division to families and, and fire yes. upon the earth and yeah, things like that. Yeah, that's hard to, so, that's, that, yeah. we have more hard stuff coming up. We do indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to take a look at how the Reformers um, looked at this. And, you know, one of the things I noticed as I was looking over Christie's notes is just how much um, the Reformers are coming out of a Christendom mentality and, and just the church and society are all together. And so mm-hmm. it's it's not just about a kingdom of God that, 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 that creates a unique community, as in Luke's gospel. It's really more about how do you work this out in practical ways mm-hmm. in, in life. And so there's some really interesting things, I think, that we're in store for. So um, take us a, take us into that, Christy. Yeah, sure. So I um, I looked at the Reformation commentaries today and Calvin's um, more in-depth commentary, as well as um, um, a little bit of secondary literature. But I think what's What's interesting is the themes they're pull, pulling out of this, and as, as I pointed out before, they this really isn't divided like into you know if you would go into maybe your feasting on the word that had the this particular you know revised common lectionary piece put together and to make sense for you, it's not divided that way from the reformers. And as we talked, it doesn't really work as a unit. But there were some themes I picked out from their comments. So I will start with those themes, and then I'll make some general kind of comments about how this fits into the larger um, context of Reformation thought. So the first theme that I, I came out with was really the Protestant work ethic. Mm-hmm. And so this section has a tension between trusting in God to provide 
and not being idle. Mm. Um, and clearly, the idea that you can sell all of your goods and live from day to day off of someone else's work does not sit well with the reformers. <laughs> um, and so there has to be this balance in the mind of the mainstream Protestant reformers. There's obviously our, our radicals go there, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. That one right. should not worry, and yet that one should work. Um, and so it seems that the response is to live a life where they're um, the, the responding in faith in terms of how they treat others. Um, says Heinrich Bullinger, Christians must, must work hard to earn a living in their vocation so that they and their family may have what is sufficient for themselves, and then they may give of what they have extra in other, to others in need. And, you know, I don't have any problem with that statement whatsoever. You know, I, I'm, I, I guess maybe I have enough of the Protestant work ethic in me that I right. believe in in doing my best in all in Absolutely. all things, right. and and in 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 managing my money in such a way that I have enough to give. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, in other, in other words, you don't have to worry about where your meals come from as God has given you the ability to provide for yourselves and your family. And for the Reformed in particular, they are focusing on Christian community. So sure. once you have extra, then you give it to others. So this is a, but this is a shift from Roman Catholicism that mm -hmm. preceded it, right? Because you have, you know, you really do have a call on those who are really committed to the church, to this vow of poverty. Right. Um, and uh, that someone else is going to give you, you know, even the mendicant friars, I did that, but they're going to beg from door right. to door. Right. And I think there's a practicality here of not everybody can beg door to door because somebody has to, somebody has to make, be able <laughs> right. to provide for right. it. So, well, and I think about, you know, you mentioned that the radical reformers took this very literally and, and, and stopped working and things like that. And, oh. and, um, you well, know, the radical, the radicals did. Yes. Right, the yeah. radical reformers did. And, and, um, you know, the, the, obviously I don't think that's what Jesus is, is talking about either, but, you know, you know, as I reflect on the passage in Luke, I think that the point is not that you live from your own ability to work, but you rather you live from God's provision yeah, and yeah. that doesn't preclude your ability to work but but basically right, you see right. god's provision in all of life right. and um um so I, I find it interesting that they're you know in their response to the catholic situation with the vow of poverty and to the situation with the radical reform of of just disavowing all possessions you know uh, it's interesting you know they, they seem to take a pragmatic approach they, to it which is which i think is understandable I, I do too. I do too. And we'll talk about later, not I, only in response to, but also to a changing world that is having this mm -hmm. beginnings of this kind of moneyed economy. And sure. so that's going to impact how this plays out. And I, you know, I, I think we all have to try to translate Jesus teachings into how we live our lives practically. But I, I, I think I would say that you know, in this passage in Luke's gospel, Jesus is presenting the ideal of the kingdom. Right. And, and really, right. and really pointing more toward the fulfilled kingdom in which God is literally providing everyone right. with everything they Indeed. need. Yeah. So this also plays on possessions. It's another of the theme themes that's here. And, um, one of the, one of the people in the, uh, the, the reformed, uh, reformation commentaries was a pastor named Francois Lambert. And he, uh, He's a reformed pastor, um, and he claims that, look, this scripture is more about trusting in God to provide than to get rid of possessions, kind of what we said for him. Yeah. It is a warning not to rely on possessions, that these possessions can distract you from the kingdom of God. And then Calvin c continues this theme that happiness in the things of the present life are not representative of true happiness. Mm -hmm. 
And there is a tension in the writing between doing and believing. So Calvin here has quite a long discussion um, and really with kind of some of the philosophy of the time of how we tend to do according to what we think is the highest good. Mm, For example, that we tend to, if we think honor is the highest good, we tend to do things that bring us honor. Or if we think it's money, which is most Americans can identify with, we tend to do things that bring us money, right? How big is my house? How fancy is my car? I buy these things to show off that highest good or pleasure, which the Epicureans were, of course, Mm. known for seeking pleasure. Um, So Calvin suggests that the highest good might be understood as heaven, but even there we are striving, and because we're striving, we we despise the world. And he suggests, um, look, that happiness is this thing and that can only come with trust in Christ. Mm -hmm. So it's this really interesting, it kind of flips, he's kind of doing what the scripture itself does. He's flipping it on its head that... People are. You don't have to strive for happiness. Yeah, you, you don't you have trust to, in Christ. Tr- right, exactly. And, and the happiness comes as a result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I like that actually. I like. That I, I, do on too, it. Yeah. I do too. I do too. Another thing in there, which I kind of mentioned earlier, was this idea of the chosen. Um, and this right at the beginning: do not be afraid of. Uh, do not be afraid, little flock. And that little reflects then the chosen, the small number there. <laughs> um, and uh, again, that's that's also one of the big tensions within the Reformation of 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 who is the kingdom of God, who who is the true church, and um, we we get that. I, I think we've seen with Calvin, he actually has this kind of belief or the potentiality of universal salvation. So his flock is much bigger than we often give him credit for, mm-hmm. but that is still there, and they find it in their interpretation of scripture. So again, people actually look to that as maybe one of those references. The true disciples are going to be few. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we've already kind of talked about that in my section, so Mm -hmm. I won't belabor it. Right. I I do think that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I I did too. And it certainly wasn't how I read, how I read it. So I thought that was an interesting piece. Um, Also in this um, salvation alone, um, statement of God's unending love that God will provide. And this is a promise that God will continue to um, preserve God's children at all costs. And, and I would want to echo that because, again, part of what I was trying to stress in my segment was I think that's that's the major undergirding so. foundation for this whole section of Luke's gospel uh, is that sense of trust in God. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, watchfulness. Um, and uh, they began to ask what it means to be watchful. Um, the reformers agree that it's metaphors that people can't necessarily always be awake, (laughs) (laughs) which, yeah, I think we all agree. However, I might add that part of the, part of the hours, keeping of the hours of the Roman Catholic church was in part of this watchfulness, right? And they're basically doing it, you know, all hours of the day. And if you're a true monk, you're getting up at the crack of dawn, you're going to bed with these prayers. So this is part of your watchfulness practice. You're getting up before dawn, actually. Exactly, yeah. The first first office is in the middle of the night. That's right, it is. That's right. Um, So this is a special call, um, however, for ministers who are caring for the flock and are supposed to be extra diligent. For Calvin, the, the girding of the loins is contrasted with sloth and the burning lamps with darkness and ignorance. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, the lamps are to help guide persons for the journey in darkness. Wow. Yeah. So those things are 
are obvious, but he's he's kind of tying it all together. Well, you know, as I ministered, men, as I ministered, as I mentioned in my in my segment, um, you know, the the term for the steward, the oikonomos, was mm-hmm. a term that was used for ministry. Mm-hmm, so I think mm-hmm. I think Calvin has a has some basis for this, uh, implying this to to ministers mm-hmm. definitely. And then in terms of Luke twelve thirty six, Calvin definitely considers Jesus to be the householder who is in heaven while the servants, his followers, are are to stay and do their duty, their, if you will, lawful occupations. So this is part of that we're supposed to be doing the things that God has called us to do, the, the, the work that we've been asked to do. Um, while he is away, says Calvin, we should not do whatever we want to do, but we should be vigilant. Yeah. So those are the themes. But let me make some broader observations about the Reformation here. So what does all this mean for the Reformation? And how does telling someone to be watchful and not to worry and trust in God play out in terms of the church? And I think we can look into the shift of behavior that come, coincides with the Reformation itself. And we've talked about this a lot. But um, it is significant for the lives, uh, our lives as Protestants. Um, so remember, the medieval church has a call to be watchful, was a call to be in a state of grace. Mm. So you lived your life within that sin grace cycle that that um, coincided with your behavior you went to confession the priest gives you absolution and and uh, penance and you do those works then you're in a state of grace you take communion and it happens over and over and over Mm. again Mm. so your watchfulness was to be active in this cycle and the works are part of your salvation and those works usually involve spiritual works such as prayers and supplications that kinds of thing maybe in some cases, maybe money that would be helping others out. There's all kinds of things there. But again, that's part of your, the watchfulness is part of being being ready in being in that state of grace. Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, that is not the theology of the Reformation. And so they remove that cycle of sin and say that faith alone is all that one needs for salvation. And the works lose their significance as a means to salvation, Right, being watchful does not mean participating in this cycle for a yeah, Protestant. The sin grace cycle, where you sin, you you seek con- absolution, you you do penance, and then you're able to take communion, and you're back in a state of grace. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what it does mean is that the disciple is in a trusting relationship with God, who assures them of their salvation. In that trusting relationships, work necessarily point out the, point out that trust so they're a part of it it's coming out of the grace sure so these are not specifically works of the spirit but a response of our whole selves to the loving grace of god as such our vocation becomes our work mm. and our watchfulness too mm. so as living into the role that god gave us as our gift to the world um, and you know that Calvin spends a lot of time on spiritual gifts and that spiritual gifts can play out in terms of what your vocation is. In other words, our work is in and amongst all of God's creation to live into God's grace. Mm. Uh, Philip Melanchthon writes that, quote, one must have a sincere desire and a good will to give honest, useful service to human society. That's interesting. You know, I find it interesting. Again, that, that sort of... That sort of um idea of of society and church being together in the realm of christendom so that mm-hmm. so that 
what applies to the church applies to society and vice versa. And so that the working out of this call to be diligent and, and faithful and watchful in one's discipleship applies to your role right. in daily life. Right. Uh, well, and it's kind of an attack on the monasteries too, mm. because what was the ideal right. space for someone who is devout? Be in the monastery, right. do your hours, do your masses every day. Yeah. Now... It's not there, and those doors are shut. You're supposed to be in society. Mm -hmm. But it's also a crit criticism of those groups that want to pull away and be separate. Right. Some of those Anabaptist groups. Yes, they did. Groups. They withdrew, they withdrew mm -hmm. and, and from society, and that was part of their... That was intentional because society exactly. was seen to be evil, and they were withdrawing exactly. to protect themselves. Yeah. Exactly. So what an interesting lane um, that they're in there. Yeah. And another thing I can point out with this then are all of the various types of religious things that accompany what you would do in daily life. For example, I've mentioned these little prayer books before, right. you know, right. these prayer books that have prayers before you start your job for the day, mm -hmm. prayer while you're at lunch, prayer just because you need a little break and you need to pray. I mean, these 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 prayer books accompany your life. Well, and certainly the daily the daily family prayer at meals. That oh, was something yeah. that was central. Yeah. yeah, we don't have as much of that, but we have a little bit left mm -hmm. in, in here and there. So it's an interesting space. So instead of your daily hours, this this prayer is accompanying your work, but yeah. it's not it's not instead of your work. Right, it's part of your work. Right. So, right. Um, of course. Um, working out one's vocation is interesting and in how to justify this in terms of the call of poverty. <laughs> and the Protestants really looked um, at this as poverty with, what, within one's own place in life. And this is a time still where you're kind of born into what you're good. Right. You, you don't have kind of this aspiration that you're born into poverty and you're going to be rich. The mm -hmm. American dream isn't part of it. No. If you're if you're born into a peasant class, you're going to probably be doing peasant kind of work. That yeah. kind of thing. Society had a fairly um, rigid class structure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, there was some upward mobility, but not, not like we see mm -hmm. today. So I think there is a practical recognition that the entire society cannot actually run if everyone truly has nothing, like I said before. <laughs> and Juan Cameron, he's a well-known historian, uh, Reformation historian, suggests that part of the response of reformers to this might be the reality of the developing moneyed economy. Mm -hmm. Um and what is significant is that there is an understood kind of poverty that is built into the Protestant ethic. Use what, you, use what you don't need to help others. Do not try to elevate yourself above your given position in life. Mm -hmm. So we see that. So you're born into this. You do the job you're supposed to do. You do what you need to be able to continue that job and live comfortably so that you're not in need and you take what's extra and you help others with it yeah so yeah. obviously <laughs> what one perceives is what one needs <laughs> <laughs> may may differ yeah but anyway um so what does this, all this look like i mean literally how does one live into one's sphere act with poverty within one's given life space and it does have a look it means that quote poverty is reflected in not being ostentations but being clean and neat um, and of course, we see this from the Northern Renaissance paintings that we've talked about before, these very pious people in mm -hmm. simple clothes, um, but sometimes really pretty nice furnishings, yeah. um, enough that they can live comfortably. So for example, instead of the garish and fanciful outfits of the Roman Catholic rulers, they had simpler dress, even banning, quote, cut works, embroidery, caps, bands, and rails. Um, also, behavior was to match, and therefore the banning of 
nightclubs and bars and drink, and of course, the gentle, quiet comportment we expect. And you all know this because this is these little Puritan dolls you do right. through growing up, right? right? That simple, crisp dress that they used to wear that didn't look cheap, yeah. but it didn't look extravagant either. Right. Right. And so, um, and we, we, when you, you know, think about the uh, uh, English history and when you think about the shutting down of the theaters, and this was all part of how you displayed your poverty. I find it interesting that they, they focused attention on dress. And as you said, sometimes the, the furniture or the houses, they might not be necessarily ornate, but they were, they were well furnished. Yeah, yeah. So, and a lot of these people manufactured these things. Yeah. And, and, and you know today, like if you happen to be a furniture maker, you probably have pretty nice furniture in your house because right. you made it, you know, you've, you've designed it. And I think we see a lot of that as, as trades, as these trades are, are, not that we didn't have the trades before, but they're big, they're they're moving into to a, a broader economy. People are making more than what they simply can do, so they have extra. So they furnish their homes with this stuff, mm-hmm. and so yeah, it's kind of interesting. And of course, what people need today, you know, you read on your if you look at a house plan that you want to buy and you think oh well i need to have a shower that comes from the ceiling that <laughs> has a fancy steam and has fancy f- fancy lights that sur- i mean the things we think we need and we right. really need are, right. are are different so. yeah that's right thank you thanks hi everybody we are back and Alan and I have been uh, throwing around the idea of what does it mean to be watchful today? So I'm going to let him kind of put in some thoughts and uh, we'll have a fun discussion about this. Yeah, thanks, Christy. You know, we, we've, we've talked about various kind of images of what it looks like to be watchful in our, in our podcast so far. You know, we've talked about the, the, the daily office or even the, 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 the observation of the hours in the monasteries. Uh, we've talked about, you know, the Protestant work ethic and doing one's job well mm-hmm. and, and, you know, living, living ha- you know, providing for your own living, but also having enough to give away. We've talked about uh, the radicals who, um, you know, kind of take this overboard and, you know, do away with all their possessions and withdraw from the rest of society. And, you know, it reminds me of growing up in the 70s, you know, back in that day, Hal Lindsey was the rage, uh, in at least in the world that I lived in. Hal Lindsey was the rage, and his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, had just come out. And he predicted that, you know, um, based on a passage, I believe it's in Matthew's Gospel, this generation shall not pass away before, you know, the Son mm-hmm. of Man shall come. And, and it's when you see the budding of the fig tree. Well, he interpreted that with the formation of the state of Israel, right. either in 1938 or in 1948. Oh, right. So Jesus was going to either going to come back in 1978 or 1988. And this was this this was a best selling book in the seventies. There was a movie made out of it. I never read the book, but I went to see the movie. And you know, th- this I remember actually going into restaurants, and there would be, you know, if it was a Christian rest, Christian owned restaurants, they might have a pick a portrait on the wall that was painted depicting people and the rapture. And people oh. being lifted up out of their cars and yes, yes. jets crashing because the pilots are gone and things like that. 
that was that was the image of watchfulness in some circles in those days. And one of the things that I find astonishing is that about ten years ago, I went to a bookstore, Christian bookstore, and there was a like a brand new book by Hal. Lindsay. Oh, really? And I was like, how does this guy have any credibility anymore? <laughs> but wow. there's still people who, who buy into that. They do. Well, and I, I keep thinking about the Jehovah's Witness and the whole watchtower mm-hmm. concept that they have. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I think in both of those cases, and what, what is coming to mind is I, that their, their message of watchfulness has a sense of fear about it. It does. And that is not what I read out of this passage. No, no, um, that there's I agree. A, there's a sense of trust and love and live into that love. I, to me, the watchfulness is live into the love that's in front of you. Don't ignore God's presence and work in your life. Um, that's how I read it. Right. Well, I mean, that's the whole foundation for this passage, as I tried to lay out, is this confidence. We pray confident, you know, as as we saw in sort of the the setup or the the explanation of the parable of the rich fool that leads into the Mm -hmm. passage for the Revised Common Lectionary, you know, your father knows that you need these these things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you you can pray in that confidence that God knows what you need, cares about you having your Mm -hmm. needs, and is delighted to see that good things come into your life, you know, that's a different way of praying, and that's a whole different way of approaching God than this fear-based idea that if, you know, that God is just waiting to, you know, to to strike or to zap you, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I, I mean, I think, I think, there's, you know, as I'm thinking about this and processing it, one thing that's coming to mind, well, what, what does that look like, though? I mean, mm-hmm. what does that look like practically? And I, I started thinking about, I listened to a podcast, uh, NPR On Point, and uh, uh, they were reviewing um, a work by Tim Miller called Why We Did It in a travelogue to the Republican Road to Hell. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty intense book. Um, but it was all about how people were serving potentially in a space um, where they th- were doing things that they are working in spaces that they thought were immoral and how do they end up in that space? Mm. So, um, and trying not to get into the politics of it, but people that disagreed with the, with the, the president's approach and yet they were still working in right. that, um, right. in, 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 in the, in, in his, in his administration, administration yeah. in mm-hmm. some way, shape or form. And so it was, it was, at what point? At what point are, do you think you're a moral guide? Is this part of your watchfulness? I mean, at what point can you be in an immoral job and be watchful? Yeah. But what is the what happens if those jobs are needed? Had those people not been there, right? Because they disagreed with the president's uh, agenda, agenda, yeah. then did that does that keep them from somehow being out of the space of God? I don't know how to answer it, but I think mm-hmm. it's, it turns out to be a huge ethical question i agree so watchfulness agree. Yeah. actually i think has with it this huge ethical call on our lives at, but yet even then what does that look like yeah 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 well you know in in, in those days the the whole late great planet earth thing you know the fear was for the christians it was to it was it was meant as a motivator to get out and to and to win souls mm. to get out right. and make converts right and you know that that if you weren't getting out and making converts, then you were being lazy or, or right. slothful. And you know, I I read this passage, and you know, it just says, you know, 
Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. So the part of it is you're ready. You're, you're, right. you know, you, you know, when, when, when Christ returns, it doesn't catch you unawares, but right. you, you, you know, you're in a state of, of readiness, but, but also the, 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 in the, in the, in the context following, you know, you have this parable of the faithful steward. Who is the faithful mm-hmm. and prudent steward whom his master right. will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master find, will find at work when he arrives. So you can see this applying to that Protestant ethic of, yeah. you know, we, we're all given these roles to do and, and we do them to the best of our ability. And, and you know, I, one of the, I mean, you know, one of the hallmarks of our Presbyterian faith is that every member is a minister. And right. and that you know you can you can be faith a faithful disciple whether you work um, for the Department of Roads or whether you work for the school department uh, you know the local school district or whether you right. you know work in a church setting or whatever you do you know we're all called to be faithful disciples gonna, and to carry out our roles there. I'm gonna push. So I gave the example earlier of the Tim Miller book. Well, here's another book by Christopher Browning and Kevin Gallagher called Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. Wow. And this is about ordinary men who were carrying out the final solution in Nazi Germany. Yes, yes. So is that working for the good of God? Absolutely not. Can you you justify, I'm just a guy, I'm just working in a regime. I'm doing what I'm told. I'm doing what I'm told. And so I do think there's this kind of moral call in our lives to evaluate the kind of work we're doing. And if your work is in some way, shape, or form hurting somebody else, I think that doesn't count. (laughs) Well, and you you know, I had this discussion actually in my, in my ethics class in, in seminary back in the, back in the (laughs) early eighties. And, you know, you notice I didn't say driving a beer truck. I didn't, I didn't say, I didn't mention working for a, a weapons manufacturer, you know? Um, uh, And, I, I think it does get murky in some of those I areas. I mean, murky. you know, yeah. we, if your job is to distribute alcohol to a society that is that is awash in alcohol and and is is beset by alcoholism, uh, yeah, I think that's a problem. It's an in, yeah. I mean, there's some really there's some really hard questions here, and I'm not trying to. But I think I think you have to do some some praying and some soul searching. You do there as well. You know. On the other hand, I'm going to brag about my son a little bit. My son Derek. He he recently uh, finished his PhD in physics at Johns Hopkins University, and he works at the Pentagon for the Department of Defense. They have an organization called CAPE that is an internal um, sort of oversight and advisory. Um, uh, group and so that like they employ economists who who talk about who give like um, uh, who who look at costs and try to keep costs down and and his role is to evaluate military strategy and to their group advises the department of the, the secretary of defense about the feasibility of military strategy is that a morally acceptable job, you know? Yeah he, yeah. he has a role model in this in that his wife's uncle has worked for the CIA as an analyst for 40 years. And, you know, one of the things that uh, 
this this man has done over 40 years is he's also a PhD physicist and he's he's been involved with some of the nuclear disarmament talks he's been on mm-hmm. he's been like he's been on many trips to Russia as one of the inspectors ensuring you know the the dismantling of nuclear bombs but he's he you know the the role seems to be that you you speak the truth to an administration whether or not it's what the administration wants to hear and I honor that mm-hmm. integrity, you know, and I mm-hmm. think that's where my son Derek sees himself as well, because he, the other thing that you may not know about Derek is that he served four years in the, in the Marine Corps. He, as a 17-year-old, he believed the rhetoric that we were in Iraq to bring democracy to the Iraqi mm-hmm. people. And um, my son went over there and laid his life on the line to, um, to protect the materials that um, the building materials that Dick Cheney's corporation sent because they had the exclusive monopoly on rebuilding mm-hmm. uh, all the infrastructure that we destroyed in the bombing. And um, I was pretty unhappy about that. And he, you know, after he came, he came back from his first deployment, he was pretty disillusioned and, and he knew that he was, they weren't there to bring democracy to the Iraqi people. And mm-hmm. so when he walked away from the Marine Corps after four years, he thought it was for good that the, he was done with the military. And then, you know, last year as he was finishing up his PhD, this opportunity with the Department of Defense opened up and he really got interested in it because I think he sees it as a way to apply his mm-hmm. experience as well as his education and expertise in a way that could be helpful. Right. You know, and it's it's like I've heard of other people talking about people working at the Pentagon who believe in keep, in keeping the peace, you know? Right. Well, and and, and who 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 are not hawks definitely in any way shape or form, and I would say that is that is who he is. And, and that would have been similar to some part of the discussion on that podcast yeah, as well yeah. was was Somebody there needed to, uh, to. They're standing in the gap. Yeah, they're in the gap. Somebody needed to to stand up against. They're, they're the, serving as a restraint to up. the excesses. Ex- exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, kind of. It just. I, I, anyway, I guess I found this broader discussion into the ethics so rich and interesting and challenging mm-hmm. that watchfulness isn't. It it really is deeper than just. Um, just sitting there waiting for Jesus to come back. I right. mean, you know what I mean? Right. It, it really involves, and I think the reformers have it right, and that it involves all of our lives and how we are working in the world and, and being in the world. Well, and I will even say this, you know, I have I have made attempts in my life in various ways to to observe the daily offices as much as possible. And... Uh, I did. I mean, when I was doing as I was really doing it kind of full on and, and not not all all of the hours as the in the Catholic Church, but more the 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 morning and the evening offices. And it really became cumbersome. And it really became, you know, because it takes it takes a quite a bit of chunk of time to do take, that. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I, I, I mean, I think the point of all of that is to keep one's life oriented toward this underlying foundational faith in the goodness of God that, that we can, we can orient our lives toward God's kingdom and toward what God is doing in this world in whatever roles we're, 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 we're called to live out that, that, you know, that, that commitment to the kingdom and, and, 
you know, I think that's the key, you know, like you say, I mean, no one can stay awake all the time. I don't know that we can, I don't know that it's humanly possible to live every day intentionally, but I think to the, to the best that we can, we try to live our days intentionally. And, and the intention really is to focus on, focus our lives on the kingdom of God, on the values of the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. and, and on, on the kind of, uh, relationships that that creates among people who share yeah, that, I agree. that commitment. I agree. I agree. And I think that's the, I think that's kind of the crux of it. And I think it's the, um, I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's that, that, that keeping focused, that keeping mm-hmm. focused on God's call and, and how often do we go astray from that? You know, and uh, so, I mean, you know, yeah. not everybody can be on every day. You know, I think I think we're allowed to be human beings. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Everybody needs a down day. Yep, yep. Well, um, I I hope. <laughs> I guess we've given you a lot of things to think about for um, sermon. planning next week and how this very awkward set of passages can actually be quite rich and take you in a lot of different directions, Um, and uh, and hopefully. I don't know. I think you might be more energized by it now than maybe on the first read. I hope so, too. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together... Listen Listen for for the the word. word.